Welcome to Watch Korean Cinema episode 31 on the road to Sampo. And we talk about director and his last movie before passing away at a fairly young age. But a director that was so revered and still is. And uh, therefore we'll have a meaty bio and discussion about and containing what made director Lee Man-hee so revered and admired. And uh, we will discuss his last movie that he completed before his uh, untimely passing, The Road to Sampo. And I'm Kenny B, and with me is, uh, I-, I would say, Korean cinema expert, but I'm of the belief that if you deem yourself an expert, then there's no more improving and improval to be made. So I'll tell you, I'm with Korean cinema, goddamn does he know so much about it. Person, I'll, I'll, person. Go, I'll go with that, I don't even know if I'd agree with that, but... Right on, but, but I'm here with Paul Quinn anyway, so say hi, buddy. Hi guys, nice to meet you. I don't trust anybody that calls themselves an expert. Uh, that's why I uh, will stop doing it towards you, because uh, I've, do, then you'll have no room to improve, and where's the fun in uh, not improving? Exactly right. So uh, so you better, otherwise I'll call you a little Korean cinema wet stain, called Paul Quinn, <laughs> in the future. You're going to be checking whether I improve now, aren't you? Oh. Well, well, this episode is a good um, sample of uh, your skills because we're really going back to vintage uh, cinema, to mid-70s, and there's not a lot of uh, podcasting coverage on this uh, particular director. So I'm here to show interest. That's what I do in my biography and questions, and you're here to educate me and hopefully the listeners, and hopefully everybody will turn happy-go-lucky in the end after hearing it all, so... Yeah, and get to know who Lee Man he is. Exactly. So let's not uh, spend too much uh, time on this. Uh, let's just uh, establish some contact information, first of all. And this is Podcast on Fire. The show is um, a po- Podcast on Fire Network, rather. And the show is What's Korean Cinema? And we'll answer What's Korean Cinema in the case of uh, this movie and this director, I suppose. Uh, we are located on podcastonfire.com, along with all our other shows on Hong Kong Cinema, New and Old, Japanese Cinema, Lazy Cinema. We talk about ninja movies. We do commentary every now and again, and bonus episodes, too, that are exclusive exclusive to the website so we have plenty of choices over there on the site email us if you have any questions or feedback if you've heard of Lee Man He if you've heard of The Road to Sampo and if you've seen it then please let us know and what you thought podcast on fire at googlemail.com join us over on social media we have handy buttons at the top of our website first of all our Facebook presence click the Facebook button that will lead you to our page so why don't you leave a like in support if you're interested in chatting with us uh, search out the podcast uh, on fire network discussion group it's literally called podcast on fire network we'll post show updates there and we'll have grand old discussions about uh, everything and um, dance on and all in a friendly manner and if you click the twitter button you will reach our twitter feed which is at podcast on fire if you click the itunes button you can subscribe to us on itunes to have your podcasts delivered to you in a timely fashion and if you have any feedback you'd like to leave us uh, leave it leave it in, in the form of a star rating uh, even leave a written comment that will make us very 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 happy and finally stream us on stitcher radio the button will lead you to their website presence but uh, the application is available on the apple app store and google play all the smoothest way to experience the podcast on Fire Network on the go. So download Stitcher Radio for free. And I write about Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies mainly over at SoGoodReviews.com. A lot of questionable content uh, for adults and children alike. Because I review <laughs> I review like children's movies from Taiwan sometimes. But they're really inappropriate. You know, they're violent. And uh, there's a lot of uh, low humor which i guess is okay for kids but uh, you know this with asian cinema sometimes it seems like they tailor a family movie 
to all audiences almost sometimes because sometimes it's nigh on adult and I mean violent wise uh, they don't insert porn or anything in these movies but um, Taiwanese and Hong Kong cinema it can be a schizophrenic experience but I am very much uh, fond of it so that's what I uh, sometimes write about over at sogoodreviews.com and I video review over at sleazykvideo.com and my and my tweets are available at sogoodreviews Paul, my friend, uh, Korean cinema, something, something, something. Uh, yeah, is, person. <laughs> person. And it, that is all uh, displayed. The know-how and the evolving know-how is all displayed. Where and uh, at what address on the web, sir? I'm at hangulcellulite.com for all things Korean cinema, reviews, interviews, talks given at various institutions, etc., um, etc. Et I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangulcelluloid. On Twitter at Twitter dot com hangle celluloid um there are buttons to both the facebook and twitter feeds on the home page of hangle if you can't remember all that if you want to email me you can get me at info at hangle or you can get in touch through the facebook messaging thing that's pretty much me Excellent, and uh, all the relevant links, including to your sites and uh, social media endeavors, will be available in the show post. And uh, before we get going, we'll uh, provide a rundown of what's to come. And I, I mean, I only had two sections coming up, but I thought I'd give you two. Um, you, <laughs> I, was about, <laughs> I was about to say, I thought I'd give you two a heads up anyway, like I assumed there's only two listeners. I think we have more than two, maybe five. Oh, yeah. I'd be happy if we had to. So, so welcome in, you two, and hope you enjoy. So the sections I'll be presenting to you two are the following, and uh, they will have timestamps in the show post, so you can skip ahead if you like to the review. But uh, first, we'll talk in length about director Lee man and uh, we conclude the episode with the review of The Road to Sampo. So it seems simple enough, but uh, there's plenty to say about this revered director. And uh, we always encounter the fact that, oh, this is important, this is uh, an important film, director, and of course, there's plenty of them, but uh, re- researching this, I just there, there were different vibes surrounding this director. Uh, that's why I landed on a word like revered. There, there, there's certainly a lot of um, a lot of positive train of thoughts here. So we'll uh, get into it. But the road to Sampo is from 1975, and the plot from the Korean film archive goes as follows: Going through a jail and the site of construction, a young laborer called uh, Young Dal, played by Bak Il Siob, meets. Middle meets middle-aged Mr. Jong, played by Kim Jin Q, on his way to his hometown, Sampo, after 10 years' absence. They become friendly and get to know a waitress called Bak Hua, played by Munsu, who runs away from a restaurant, and then they go on the road together, essentially. There's a, there's a few things that happens, obviously, leading up to the end, but uh, this is a winter road movie with three people, essentially, in it. So Lee Man-hee, the director, the revered director, and described in the piece from koreanfilm.or.kr as a creator who stirred up praise and jealousy in anyone who saw his films, including the era's fellow directors. But passing away at the young age of 45 made people forget about Lee Man-hee. He was put aside in favor of other directors, other developments in cinema, but word of mouth stayed strong in the community at least and as late as 2005 the Pusan International Film Festival did a retrospective so Lee Man Hee is now maybe finally considered one of the core directors for Korean cinema and six of his films were on the 2013 edition of the top 100 Korean films as compiled by the Korean film market. Six films, that's not too shabby. He was born in Seoul in 1931 after, uh, and after graduating from high school, Lee Man-hee served in the military between 1950 and 1955, which included battle action in the Korean War. 
Post all this, he worked as an assistant director for directors such as An Jonghua and Park Gu and gained experience in the industry that then prompted his feature debut in 1961 as director with the film Kaleidoscope. So, Paul, question time! What do we know about his debut in terms of quality, critical and audience impact? Uh, I did read that it was a lost family drama film. So is there any official notes about the film available now in 2017? There are. And that's really down to that revival that came after the Busan retrospective. People started writing about stuff he'd done, even though it had been lost. You know, people that had seen it back in the day. Kaleidoscope was his first film. It's been lost as so many of his films have been. And considering that, the fact that he still got six in the top 100 says an awful lot more about him. So they didn't have it for the retrospective, but it was brought up in discussion during it? it was. It's always brought up in discussion because it was his first film, but it sort of, in a way, sums up his take on things. The, the story's about a man who can't have children with his wife, and he has a son and daughter through a concubine. The wife harasses the concubine. She gets kicked out, runs away. 20 years later, the wife's life has gone to rubbish. The kids are doing really well. And the concubine comes back feeling really sorry for the wife and helps her out. And they all, you know, do the embrace and forgiveness, forgiveness. And it sort of says a lot about what he does. He talks about people outside norms that he treats nicely that are people that have empathy that that see the good in others even though others don't see the good in them and that's really no matter what he does no matter what genre he does that's his core he's really a a people person he's he's about character driven dramas and kaleidoscope has always been brought up because from early on people could see that that's where he was heading and that sort of sums him up as much as a road to San Po or any of the other things. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly evident that he um, he doesn't judge and pass judgment based on my viewing of the road to San Po because uh, we're dealing with, you know, essentially homeless people in a way. And, yeah, totally, uh, totally. But, it, but it doesn't uh, make that grim or anything. So uh, that's cool to know. I mean, in terms of reception, it was at the time well received by critics. It was a success at the box office, but not because of Lee Man He, he was sort of ignored for his first three films, even though his films were successful. The reason Kaleidoscope was so, so successful was because the leading actress was Che Yuni, um, oh, there we are. Wife, <laughs> wife of Shin San Ok, and the leading man was Kim Sung Ho, um, who was in The Housemaid, who was a huge star of the 60s. So you got two huge actors in a film by a director that nobody knows. They go, they enjoy it. It becomes a, su- a success because of them, not because of him. As I say, he he was sort of just the guy behind the camera until a couple of films later. Well, um, that's still a nice reward reward for your first film, of course. Uh, totally, so, totally. Uh, I think he worked up his name as the as the career um, and made his name known as the career went on. I suppose. Uh, so, uh, as as Paul mentioned, and I'll mention some other character traits uh, in terms of how he. Uh, portrayed people in his movies uh, he often depicted characters fighting against their own will overcoming internal struggles and hardships in their lives and uh, his uh, war films and female-centric melodramas is um, a formula that is considered the sort of the go-to the best uh, uh, the best formula to come out of uh, Lee Man and what makes him unique how he worked war films and female-centric melodramas uh, but rather than staying in one slot 
and certainly one style. Lehman, he was also an experimental filmmaker, which we'll talk of, uh, both in a small way, in a big way, structurally, content-wise, and so forth. Uh, he favored attempts at originality in his uh, films, and his uh, frequent uh, screenwriter, uh, Bak Giol, said of Lee that it was remarkable one single director could direct such a wide range of films in terms of structure and genre, and certainly in that time frame. Again, he started in 1961 and passed away in 1975, so... Would that be a fair assessment by his uh, frequent screenwriting partner, you think, uh, Paul, based on what you know of uh, Lee Mani? Very much so. I mean, I, on top of the character-driven sort of deal, the big thing you notice, even briefly looking at his work, is the huge range of genres he covered, from, like, as you've just sort of said, from noir to thriller to female melodrama. He's all over the place. You look at any of the other big golden age directors and you can sort of see a pattern with what they do you know you look at kim ki young what do you think you think despicable women you know etc 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 they they hang in their own classic thing you know lee chang ho he's just you know hell and hell and detriment and down and dirty with lee man he you never knew what you were going to get war film you know drama melodrama romance he was just all over the place and the quality of what he did in every genre really just screamed how good he was. So yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that. That take by a screenwriter, and 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 it seems uh, certainly true uh, as you sort of research uh, the voices that um, uh, and people that talked of Lee Mani that there was a remarkable sense of quality throughout the films. That that that's an assessment that comes out um, often when you research. Yeah. He gained notices uh, and he really opened up the thriller genre for Korean cinema with his third feature in 1962 call, called Call 112, which is the story of three men going after a wealthy woman and the cat and mouse game that follows. Uh, and, and that was a hit with audiences and critics, uh, with it uh, being notable for its quick pace akin to a professional Hollywood movie. And he got further acclaim across the board when changing tack and uh, showcased versatility with the 1966 uh, 66's The Watermill. And here Lee explored eroticism um, with a frequent collaborator, screenwriter Buck Joel, working as, uh, as a writer. And in, in fact, that was his debut on a movie in that capacity. In 1966, you also had Full Autumn, which is among Lee's most known work, uh, which was apparently working off quite a sparse script compared to um, the standard at, time, at the time, and a rather slow narrative so you hear you hear me saying like he 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 got the notices for quick pace in his movies and then a few years later he was working you know the slow pace uh by choice so you you can have a change there so he's experimental if anything and even that uh, full autumn performed well at the box office did well with critics but sadly also is a lost film despite being from 1966 so it's not the years that are the key so uh, you you can't make a determination okay everything before that year in korean cinema definitely lost it's just seemed like not every movie was stored as careful of ways you know we even had the first sound movie that korea made that is still in, in existence you know what i mean so it, it so you never know like, yeah, we, we, i mean we still we even have crossroads of youth which was you know a silent movie from you know three years before you know, A Quiet Dream or whatever it was called. There are ones that have survived, but 
every time we talk about directors, you you know, Imkon Tech, any of the films that, of his that were lost, he's actually glad they were lost because he hated them, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> it's kind of, it's taking like, I'm so glad you guys can't see that thing. You know, but Lee Man, he seems to have been hit really, really hard because so many of his films have been lost. All you can think is the fact that at the time he wasn't thought of as well as other big name directors his his fame almost came at a later stage when it was it it was almost too late to catch some of those things that's all, that's all i can assume yeah i, I mean in terms of those uh, 66 productions the watermill and full autumn i mean have you ever encountered them in your research prior to the show and uh... i've actually seen the watermill it's on the copper youtube channel they they have a lee man he section with 10 of his films I'll give you a little rundown of later on. We're going to be talking, most of the, the big things we're going to t- be talking about are actually available. The first film that you mentioned called 112 is the one film I know least about. I know it was remade under another title later on in his career prior to The Road to Sampu. I think it was The Girl Who who looked like the sun or The Girl who, Whose Face Was the Sun. It's something like that. By, uh, by him or some, someone else? by him essentially a remake because the old one wasn't available anymore and he had been proud of it but that's all you really know about it apart from oh it was it was fast paced and like a hollywood movie the watermill on the other hand is quite possibly the most perplexing film you're ever going to see it's it's really complex it's really beautiful it's deeply erotic and it's almost showing the beauty of eroticism within an almost fantasy narrative. There's there's virtually no narrative there. It's so interesting in terms of looking back at his work. I wouldn't recommend watching it as his first film because you'll just think, what? But on that level, when you think of the 70s when Korean cinema was what's been described as, you know, the sex decade, the time when adult content started to appear. You know, The Watermill was 1966. It was way before this. So he was already ahead of his time, you know, doing eroticism and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, are we talking nudity or just hints at sexuality and stuff? There are hints at sexuality and there there are brief elements of nudity and a lot of curvy parts of body with certain parts hidden by vases or cloth or so, you, you know, it's almost as you would see softcore would be described now. But back in the day, it was like, wow, they're in a bed together and they're both naked. Of it for its time, it's hugely erotic. As of now, you're not, your eyes aren't going to pop out of your head. It's going to be interesting rather than, you know, it's not hand-maiden uh, hand erotic, put it that way. And he got into some hot water by 1967 as he made... Um... Whistle and Lee and his screenwriter were accused of plagiarizing the Polish movie Night Train from 1959. This was 1967, and they sort of had that cloud hanging over them for a year before the issue was dropped. Apparently, that it wasn't as much of a plagiarizing thing. It hurt its chances to matter in the moment, though. But through retrospective, that movie Whistle gained more popularity and is actually considered one of Lee Manhe's masterpieces. So, is there anything further personally from you to add in terms of Whistle and its troubled history? It sort of sums up the controversy that's hit Lee Man through his whole career. Every time there's been something hit with one of his films, it's ruined its take at the box office. And later on, people have come back to it and gone, 
oh, it's actually a masterpiece. Some of his films he didn't finish, as we'll talk about later on. People go back to what he did and say, oh, it was a masterpiece, but that ruined it. Or, oh, it was too controversial, but it was a masterpiece. Every time something has happened that's destroyed it at the time for it only to be appreciated later on. And even to this day, people talk about Whistle as being astonishing and it should have been a huge success and it wasn't because at the time all anybody could ever say was it's plagiarized from another film i mean do, do, do we know if that was just an overreaction or is there any valid argument that it is plagiarizing the, the polish movie i think it's a massive overreaction because after a year the entire issue was dropped officially i assume it had maybe similarities but so i don't know who first thought of that first said it but whoever it was i think they were just bitter i think they were just looking for something to get at yeah, we're going to jump a little bit back and forth here um, you know we're and we mix that with people's views on the late Lehman Heba and their comments on his career etc but he, he you know we have established he started his career in the 60s and there was an assistant director to lead that confessed that his uh, well, not much of a confession a rather proclamation of love really that uh, he talked of the memories of working on Lehman his shoots as an AD were amazing and even though uh, Lee was burdened with the fact that he had to make films under the military regime as well. He sort of turned that sorrow and maybe anger into creativity and um, passion, and that made him plow forward and he kept working and working and working. And I mean, I know fairly little about that fact, making movies under the military regime and what that was like. I mean, what, what decade or decade or decades are we talking about? And is it as simple as saying that the military regime dictated? content strongly in movies essentially almost uh, saying exactly how to direct movies pretty much and even more so i mean it all really if if you look at the 50s after the korean war everything was rebuilt cinema started to grow again everything was fine and dandy and politically in 1961 park chung instigated a, a military coup to take over control and he was so controlling of everything that he censored common social things as well as cinema. And at that time, people weren't allowed to talk about politics. They weren't allowed to put sexual content in. And this was all down to his take after 1961. So instantly there was this cutoff where people had very little option but to talk about melodramas because they were the only safe things to talk about. It didn't finish there. This carried on through the 60s, right up to 1973, where the motion picture laws, it was called, was put in place, which said that every film had to underline Park's revitalizing government. So it almost had to say something about the government, whether it be overt or subtle, but it had to say something about the government and say something that was good. Even like in passing, like could movies be so smart slash lazy that as long as a character says something for like a second, then they're good? Or, or like, or, or did it need to be a really focused content? Really, they were expected to really underline, but they'd get away with doing little passing things here and there and getting on with their stories. Because of how strict it was, this was all within very bland setups to to make films that were controversial just wasn't going to get done 
Um, and it got worse and worse and worse right up until the 80s when the government changed and everything started to ease until Guangzhou in late 1980. And then it all started from a different point of view. So it's been going on for decades. The period we're talking about, the 60s and 70s, was all government controlled, was all answering to them. When you look, we've talked a lot about censorship in the sort of late 90s and them banning films with alternative lifestyles or lesbianism, whatever. That was all film production company censorship. This stuff was the nasty stuff. This was political censorship, yeah. completely different. So it was it was nasty for over 20 years. We haven't mentioned this, but I'm going to do it now. Apparently, Lee Man, he was um, you know, a heavy drinker. I don't know if anyone deemed him to be an alcoholic or anything, but people around him said he was soaring with creative inspiration and even directors like The Housemaids, Kim Ki-young, who apparently rarely praised other filmmakers, reportedly went out of his way to say he was quite surprised or much surprised by the works of Lee Man He. So that's like, I'm surprised. Can't you say it's good? No, I'll, I'll go with surprise. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's, that's Kim Ki Young down to the You're base. You're not know? getting anything else out of me. Right? I am the best and you surprise me. So, you know, <laughs> take that as good as it gets. Yeah. I would say his skill was beyond reach and um, that he uh, would have shown the movie well so much more had he lived longer. But, but again, uh, even on that strict regime that Paul talked of, Lehman, he apparently scored um, hits and critical praise at the same time uh, he was producing very fast. So it just gives the impression that uh, he uh, could make not movies according to a template only, but, but to put something of his own in there. And we'll talk of when he put too much of uh, his own train of thoughts into movies uh, that he shouldn't have. But the... Uh, this fast, breath, breathtaking pace to producing movies in the 60s and 70s, uh, is that indicative of how Korean cinema worked during those decades, that the production periods were very short, or, or, or most, or maybe some directors actually did take their time to carefully shoot movies? A bit of both. I mean, you take Kim Ki-young that you, you mentioned. He took his time and one movie a year, one movie every two years. Imquantech half and half, you know, he was quite fast at some and slow in others. But Lee Man, he was humongously fast. He was pushing stuff out within within months of starting. And a lot of it was really low budget, but it held it together. And I think that, among other directors, was a big part of where his reputation came from because they couldn't have, they did it quick, but they couldn't have done it anywhere nearly as quickly as he did. It, we, we're going to go back, get back to the military regime, and uh, one example of a movie that Lee Man he made under the regime was a movie called The Wild Flowers in the Battlefield, which was a government-commissioned anti-communist war movie produced in 1973 and was directly handled by the Korean Motion Picture Promotion Corporation, which is KMPPC, predecessor of the Korean Film Council. And uh, this had a large budget. You just talked of low budgets. And uh, KMPPC had commissioned, uh, you know, the directing of uh, the Wildflower. So in the battlefield and uh, and also uh, testimony, uh, the movie Testimony to uh, to, uh, to directing Quantex. So they had these two movies uh, from Lee Man He, the Wildflowers in the battlefield, and uh, Testimony by In Quantex. I think it's it's said in the research that in, that in Quantec ha, had experiences directing directing war films. I'm not sure Lee Man he had prior to this one, but certainly the scale and spectacle put 
put forth by the directors on these productions uh, considering you know their origins uh, making other types of movies and things and also also how the movie was kickstarted at at all it's quite something looking at these uh, movies you know army units are used as extras and uh, production the production of the wildflowers had an entire village to play with so it, it was it was gonna go boom you watched a fair amount of these movies i think whether you know you're headed into something that's produced as propaganda or not i mean how's your personal like relationship with movies with this kind of backing knowing that it's you know backed by government backed politically i mean uh, is it uh, more historically significant because it is that or does these movies have actual quality too despite being propaganda pieces i mean again that's a double-sided coin because most of these sorts of films from start to finish you, you know they're propaganda you know they're obviously paid for by the government and they they scream out wow south korea oh evil north korea again lee man he was completely different you've already mentioned that you know at the start of this film there's there's 10 minutes of North Korean tanks showing North Korea as a huge power, if you like. And at that time, South Korea, the South Korean army wasn't actually that focused. It wasn't that well equipped. So underneath all this propaganda, he was essentially pushing a little bit of anti, anti-war stuff, even though it was commissioned as an anti-communism movie. And then uh, we're certainly getting to that, uh, because they, it couldn't fly under the radar, that kind of uh, humanist thinking. Someone noticed <laughs> when he was done. Is it difficult to watch those kind of movies? Like, or they aren't, like, they aren't depicting people as uber-evil and depicting events as so heinous that it becomes hard to watch? Or they're just sort of spectacle movies? Most of them are spectacle, and most of them will make you roll your eyes almost at how pushed the propaganda is Lehman he's a different deal because there there is constantly other stuff underneath it makes them more historically interesting and more enjoyable more watchable I mean even if you go to the last few years if you look at a lot of the war movies the front line you know etc etc they could almost be seen as propaganda because of the way they push the wonderful South against the evil North, etc., etc., and that goes back to all these propaganda films. You know, it's just a new take on the same deal. War movies in general, for me, really have to have something to take me away, and very few of them do. Lee Man He always manages it because every one of his films has something else to say, and he certainly had the courage to go personally go into the wildflowers in the battlefield knowing who backed it and then because it was again themed as an anti-communist film but Lehman he still found room to go beyond the propaganda even going as far as showcasing as Paul said North Korean tank and military power extensively for the opening which is in as Paul also said in contrast to South Korea's uh, military uh, power that was by comparison poorly equipped would not be able to put up re- resistance versus the north in in actuality which sounds like a real downer message uh, almost like he's echoing a helplessness versus versus a greater power you know uh, the pain of having to be this small human versus the big machines and, uh, and the movie like reportedly you know injected this tragedy of war uh, you know anti-war if uh, if you will and he made it that way and he assumed, presumably assembled it and presented it. 
and uh, then he probably knew that the, the trouble would be stirred because yeah. the powers that be did not like what was going on in the wildflowers in the battlefield and they demanded a you know full-on redo what happened uh, based on notes is that it wasn't fully altered but instead heavily cut and partially reshot there was some new footage added i mean the, uh, over 40 minutes uh, were uh, were taken out and there, there might have been new scenes shot that Lima and he possibly were forced to direct himself or, or someone else did so uh, the, the the demanded message would be would be the, therefore injected as they wanted not this humanistic approach that Lima and he I don't know if he had an agenda he just thought I'm gonna make it this way it might fly it might not he, he didn't seem like this anarchist this little giddy gleeful anarchist or anything. It just seemed that he couldn't let go of his own persona and train of thought, which is obviously yeah. valid. And it's, it's it's not like he's promoting, you know, heinous things. It doesn't sound like it anyway. Well, I mean, there was a, there was a quote from him shortly after the time of you know, the wildflowers in the battlefield where he talked about war movies and he said from his point of view, they were no different to any other violent genre if you look at a gangster beating up an innocent man, that's violence. If you look at one army power beating another, that's violence. And he's anti-violence. So from his point of view, war movies were just another mistreatment of the underdog. And I thought I think that really sums it up. And I think it must come back to his time during the Korean War. He, he's been so anti-war the whole time. And I think the fact that he's done so many war movies is him constantly trying to say this is wrong, war, you know, what's it good for, if you like. My, my research also indicated that these train of thoughts, especially present in the wildflowers, it, they, they were kind of somber thought. He, he was looking at the entire Korea not, uh, and erasing these, this north and south divide, yeah. which is easy said and done. The notes indicated, research indicated that he was someone that feared that foreign forces would essentially take over the Korean peninsula that he was sort of slightly thinking that we should reunite and and unite and stand strong not not necessarily violently but just stand strong as one rather than divide and that that will increase our odds at at uh, persevering and, and all of that it, it, there's some notes on that so, so it's not like he's aligning himself with the north or anything that's not the point uh yeah. We've spoken a lot about the movie, but but is the wildflowers in the battlefield part of the discussion amongst critics and scholars for that intent and the production history in terms of uh, what Lee tried to do before the movie was changed? Has there been talks of that throughout, uh, throughout the decades, you think? Pretty much. Every time you come back to talking about his take on war, his take on society, it's he always plays for the characters, the the underdog, the 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 hurt person that's being mistreated by whether it be the government, society, it screams out of every one of his films. This uh, I don't know if this is lost or anything, but uh, regardless, there, there's plenty to discover, and the discoveries in a retrospective sense continued. For instance, at that event at the 2005 Pusan International Film Festival, uh, there was even an unreleased film screened at the time, 1968's Holiday which was unreleased due to um, to censorship, to presumably being banned. So what was the hoopla surrounding Holiday? Does anyone, uh, does, does anyone know? And uh, did he get in hot water for his uh, views on humanity again? Yeah, he kind of did. Holiday is spoken of 
in almost the same breath as full autumn that we mentioned earlier, or also known as late autumn. It's about two characters who have almost a road movie around a city, just as The Road to Sampu is a road movie, just as late autumn is two people on a bus journey for 72 hours getting to know each other. The whole thing about holiday is that it's the day in, a day in the life of two poor lovers who go on a date together. The man, unknown at the start to him, he finds out that his lover is actually pregnant. They end up sitting in a cafe with no money to drink coffee, and they end up meeting up with their friends to try and get her an abortion. And as soon as you say the word abortion, you know that's where the censorship came in. You know that that that's why they immediately went, well, no, not being released. And that's sort of, I guess, early stages of what we were talking about earlier, where alternative lifestyles or you know, abortion or you know, divorce, et cetera, et cetera, that all got banned in later stages. Again, Lee Man, he was right at the forefront. So, you know, the word abortion is essentially why he got into such hot water with Holiday. Well, I'm glad it survived. So it could, uh, in some shape or form, so it could be screened sometime, you know, sometimes, so, so many years later, of course. But uh, we, we hinted, of course, uh, furthermore, that Lee explored more than just war. And uh, he pursued mixtures of film noir with melodrama in the case of Black Hair. In, in 1964, it's called Black Hair, 1964, I forgot now. But regardless, it's a suspense thriller released in the same uh, year. Well, it was in 1964 with a movie called The Devil's uh, Stairway. And um, he was this kind of... Uh, he even did action movies, uh, and he was this kind of director that, as Paul has mentioned, that crafted so many movies per year, even if one or two was low budget. But people note that his output was of amazingly high quality. So, I mean, you mentioned Im Kwon Tech and you mentioned uh, Kim Ki Young, but even a director like Shin Sang Oh, who worked so much, uh, would it be fair to say that, for instance, those two, Shin Sang Oh and Im Kwon Tech, based on the volume, there, there is uneven material in there because of how much they cranked out and had very varied budgets, you know. Massively. I mean, even Turkey's, is it that, uh, does it get that bad from big directors like that? Well, it kind of does. And I, I go back to, I should have mentioned earlier, I interviewed him, Quantech, as you know, at a Korean film festival in London a couple of years ago. And he talked about the vast majority of his work that he'd hoped would get lost that he he didn't want to see the light of day because they were churning out so much stuff that they were never happy with it they always thought it was just subpar yeah quality ranges from up to down shinsan oak's got a few things that you know he maybe shouldn't be that proud of as well etc etc so is kim ki young but if you look at lee man he let me put it this way we're about to talk about road to sampo and out of all his films it's maybe one of the most unbalanced. You know, it has, from my point of view, a few flaws, but it's still an archetypal version of, of his work. So even though he's churning stuff out and even though it goes up and down, the, the baseline is just such good quality that, that he couldn't help but be lauded from start to finish. You know, no one could see how he could do this. Furthermore, on war movies, I mean, we, we talked of one, but we, we're going to talk about an earlier one that uh, cropped up in his career, which I don't know if it was a government-sponsored one or not, but he had an early hit with Marine Agon, or Marines Agon, that reportedly started was what's, what what's described as the war film syndrome in Korean movies. And I'd like to put that into context. I mean, it, 
if you look at that term, war film syndrome, would that mean that this was an early or one of the first propaganda movies that then spurred on, you know, dozens of them that we've talked about? Or was this Lee Man his own movie, you know, and it wasn't meant as uh, propaganda, if you will? Bit of both. Again, um, it was an early propaganda film. He put extra things in it. Marines Are Gone is actually seen as almost a template for Korean war movies. From that, other filmmakers who, under such censorship, were having trouble doing anything other than melodramas, suddenly started to see that if they pushed the war thing, they could get away with a lot more because the government actually liked that. So it almost spawned a war movies are easy, let's do a war movie that, that says Great South Korea and we're away. And you ended up with a spiraling genre that just seemed endless and they were all the same. They, there was no real originality in any of the subsequent things. None of them were doing what Lee Man He tried to do. None of them were doing what Im Kwon Tech had tried to do. It almost spurned just bland, easy, we'll get away, we'll get past the censorship because we're saying good things about the South Korean army. I mean, maybe their making offs weren't as... Uh lively as marina gone because apparently that uh, production took place uh, and uh, used live bullets for the cra- hear, crafting yeah. of the battle scenes which sounds very irresponsible and mm. that meant obviously it took on an aura of um, spectacle but apparently also it had a humanistic approach that was interwoven with the action as uh, lee man he depicts the unit or units on display and their bonding Further genre content continued, but so did his desire, as we've hinted at, at to speak. And uh, he was even arrested after producing the seven female POWs in 1965 because he was charged with what was called the anti, a violation of the anti communist law, as he had depicted North Korean soldiers as humane. And this left quite a mark on his uh, career, quite a scar. But even though this sounds obvious, I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, put into context what the anti-communism law would be in connection to society in movies and whether other filmmakers um, affected or by this personally or even arrested uh, of, because uh, they violated this law? Very much so. In the same way that political censorship required things about the re- revitalizing government. If you compare it to America back in the day when everybody was seen to be a communist, everybody was meant to be a Russian and, you know huge inquiries, persecution. It was a very similar thing in Korea in terms of anti-communism. Anything that said anything good about North Korea would almost have got you blacklisted and labeled as a a, a communist. And you could have been thrown in jail as Lee Man He was. I think he was thrown in jail for 30, 40 days, I think. You mentioned this seven female POWs that he made. He released it only after it had been finished or refinished by another director because they weren't happy with his sentiments in it. They redid bits. It absolutely bombed. Later, the original, as Lee Man He had made it, was uncovered and shown at, again, retrospectives. And again, it was deemed a masterpiece. So once again, some outside forces come in, pulled this film apart, and it's gone nowhere because of it. And he's ended up in jail because of it. And it's only later that that he's seen as, oh, it was quite something. What can you say? He's just, he's hit from day to day with everything he releases. 
it's almost like he's living, you know, 10, 20 years after the fact, because that's the only time his films all get seen as they were meant to be. Yeah, are there any uh, official reports of uh, other directors also thrown in jail because of this violation, or um, he was one of the few <laughs> brave ones? He was. He's one of the, the few that they talk about. There were some that were held back from releasing films for a, a time, but it was never that big news. The big thing was, you know, Lee Man He thrown in jail. There you go. He didn't go by unnoticed, right? So fellow filmmakers petitioned to have Lee released, um, and uh, he eventually was, as you said. But a sense of overthinking and paranoia was planted uh, in Lee Man He once he was released, and he felt like he couldn't make film as freely anymore. I mean understandably you're going to think about uh, your consequences a little bit more and uh, who knows if that stay in prison was uh, harrowing or not uh, but um, he did truck forward he made several war films and in uh, 1972's four o'clock 1950 which depicted the outbreak of the korean war lee's often recurring antagonism against war cropped up again and even featured lee himself in an uh, acting role as an intelligence officer so uh again Paul is here to fill us in. Uh, what makes people single out, um, people like you even, uh, 4 o'clock as, as a movie? Because it sounds again like he's furthering his themes or making new statements uh, about his humanistic approach. And um, by now, you know, it's 1972, he's in his second decade as filmmaker. Does anyone know if it has even more like stylistic statements that he's evolved as a filmmaker making another war movie? Okay, let, let me put it this way. We've had conversations about what's the best Korean film ever made. We've had numerous conversations about it which is the housemaid so let's move on move move on from that (laughs) some say it's the housemaid yeah okay some say memories of murder yep some asian film critics say oh jsa i seem to remember someone saying jsa that is what i want to talk about what makes you like jsa what particularly comes back to mind and for me it's the north and the south together in this one little space, gradually bonding when they shouldn't bond. The humanistic approach. The humanistic approach to the bonding that goes on between people, regardless of which side of, you know, which factions they belong to. You step back to 1972 with four o'clock 1950, and it's about soldiers caught at a border fighting with each other. They're completely overwhelmed. A border, or is it uh, the DMZ, as a matter of fact? What would become the DMZ, I right. guess, the, the border of the fighting. Right. Um, and as they face extermination, the sides bond together and talk about their dreams for the future of the nation. And you've got 30, 40 years before JSA, you've got him doing exactly what Parchanuk did. Again, you've got this innovator, this this constant this is what it's about this is humanity within war war is war is violence and it's nothing to do with people people are to do with people mm-hmm. uh, uh, does that mean that this movie survived in some shape or form so a filmmaker like Park Chan-wook might have seen it at some point yes and once again uh, Break Up the Chain is one of the films as well as 1940 are both on that Coffee YouTube channel so if we can get access to them they can get access to them exactly. as well. even prior to the YouTube channel. So uh, that's, um, who knows? I mean, it might be a slight inspiration for um, for Park Chan-wook. Uh, 
But uh, regardless, as the 1976, uh, Leo went through a little bit of a personal crisis. He broke up with uh, Moon Jung Suk, who had been both a partner in life and also featured in his movies. He also parted ways uh, with key crews, such as his writer and his cinematographer, and he was sort of hell-bent on experimenting, or wasn't given opportunities to be creative like uh, like he wanted to. And uh, he took a year-long hiatus uh, at this time after having produced uh, flops and... Uh, and uh, also, his movies were not very, you know, frequently seen um, due to that said experimentation. But uh, and and also did this often and did uh, it, it it often does for filmmakers. But it also did in this case. It affected uh, people wanted to finance his movies. But nineteen seventy one's a break up the chain. Uh, was uh, him it's said to be him returning to more traditional form. Uh, you know, it's a Korean style western. Set in, set in Manchuria and it stripped away that experimental artistry if you will in favor of entertainment and research notes indicates that you can if you like uh, I'm not saying you should um, and I, I don't know because I haven't seen Break Up the Chain but you can draw a line of inspiration from uh, Break Up the Chain to Kim Chi Woon and his movie The Good, Bad and the Weird that was made in 2008 and I mean how about it, Paul? I mean, do we know enough about Break Up the Chain where you can say this is a valid connection or not? Or is it just Western and Western? We really can. And Kim Ji-un has never said that he was inspired by anything other than himself to make the good, the bad and the weird. Um, but if I give you the synopsis of Breaking the Chain, you tell me what it reminds you of. Two gangsters are the kind of people who would sell their mother if it would benefit them. However, they find themselves forced to cooperate in locating a golden statue and come to some very interesting conclusions about their lives along a journey through Mancuria. And what does that remind you of? It's the good, the bad, the weird searching for the treasure. It's exactly the same thing. Which is not a bad thing, of course. You can update something and remake something uh, that um, in in your own artistic original way. I wasn't a big fan of the good, the bad, and the weird, so but uh, that's why I've forgotten most of it. But uh... totally, I, I I fully I fully agree with you, and I would almost. I wouldn't be quite as critical of breaking up the chain, but again, it is it is that similar commercial thing. It is just, it's fun. It's on the YouTube channel as well. Check it out for throwaway Lee Man He. You know, if you look at all these things, the things we can pull out of really famous people's, really famous new directors' works that sort of scream of Lee Man He. I mean, it even goes as far as Bong Joon-ho in in the road to Sampo that we're about to review, there's a constant uh, scarecrow shown where the, the couple or the three people walk past the scarecrow a couple of times. You think back to Memories of Murder, what's, you know, you've got the scarecrow. If you look at the road to Sampo, at one point they ruin a funeral by singing and dancing. If you look at Bong Jin Ho's The Host, you've got a character ruining a funeral by given all fake tears. So it's almost like Kim Ji-woon, Park Chan-wook, Bong Joon-ho have little ideas in their films that almost scream Lee Man-hee. And whether or not you can say that's definitely the case, you'd need to ask them. But it, it seems to me so obvious. It, it, it might be like, be like subconscious images that they've seen throughout the years and they, they, they crop up without them not knowing it at first, but maybe later they put it together like... Very much so. I, I would hugely assume so, you know, and I think it underlines just how importantly man he was and is. And uh, he was ultimately responsible for crafting over 40 movies in his uh, relatively short career, with the last one being The Road to Sampo. 
He did complete the film but collapsed during the editing phase of production and died after being admitted to hospital, nearly 43 years of age. So that's uh, quite a quite a young age to go uh, to pass away at. Uh, the Grand Bell Awards saw fit to give the road to Sampo some of the big statues of that year. Uh, best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor to Kim Jin Kyu playing Mr. Jong, and Best New Actress to uh, the waitress or prostitute Moon Suk. I mean, uh, to, to finish it off, uh, finish it off, and I mean we might have mentioned this, but we, we've talked so much about him, what people think about Lee Man He and mostly good, but what do you think is the most echoed sentiment when fellow filmmakers, scholars, critics bring up and look back on the career of Lee Man He, even if you mention it yourself, what do you think is the one that people just the, the go-to sort of like, Lee Man He, this is what I want to say about him. I would like to quote reference from Im Contact about Lee Man He because it, for me, sums up what everyone else thinks about him. He was working at the same time on film that we were talking about, Big War thing, and he said, oh, The Wildflowers, it was what he was filming, and what he said was, I had so many troubles during production that at the end they asked me to f- fill in and finish the rest of Lee Manhe's movie. Unless I am a fool, it is impossible to do a movie someone else has been making. At the time I thought to myself, I just cannot Im- imitate his style. He has such a unique way of doing things. And that sums it up for me that M. Quantech just said, I can't copy him. I can't do what he does. He's unique. He's original. He's like no other. That's someone else's voice, not mine. And I shouldn't I shouldn't attempt to echo that voice and what have you. So, so presumably they got someone else uh, in, if not Lee Man He, to, uh, to sort of uh, scrap ideas in the wildflowers. But uh, M. Quantech uh, declined that, it's, it seems like. Pretty much. Very well said and... Um, uh, that's a good man saying a good thing about another good man. So certainly, certainly a nicer way to put it than Kim Hee Young. I was who, surprised. Who was just surprised? That's all you're getting out of me. Like screw, screw you, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Uh, so the road to Sampo, his last movie, is what we're gonna review. And uh, for me, I haven't seen any of Lee Man His other movies, but based on what I've read and what I've now listened to, it doesn't feel like the high point of Lee Man He's creativity but it's very solid and it's a nice little movie it's not a little because it's lazy or anything um, or because it leans on conventions of the road movie and uh, the connections that can be formed on the road it's just a fairly well executed template with sincerity it didn't blow me away but i can see someone being very uh, confident shooting this little road movie with uh, some character drama and uh, and uh, people being engaged in in the production Really, because it doesn't seem like uh, actors or filmmakers being tired of uh, shooting the road movie. It seems like everybody wanted to be there. A best picture thing? Maybe not, but uh, all all very solid. Um, You mentioned a little bit quick bite-sized opinion before, but uh, just to, um, for the sake of discussion, uh, mention some other thing in short you want to say about The Road to Sampo. I think The Road to Sampo sums up Korean cinema road movies. Um, If you look at Seopyeonjae, etc., etc., road movie after road movie. This was at the end of Lee Man He's career and he was ill as he was making it. And I think that shows, I think it is unbalanced. It does have its, its issues and it is to my mind, overly episodic, but considering it was his last film and it was released posthumously, I, I think it stands as 
a testament to, to what he could do when he wasn't at full power. He certainly gets there with the characters, though. There, there, is a, there, there are conventional developments here. There's even romance here, um, you know, even though the, the, the ending is not as conventional as you might think. But there, there is a through line here that we eventually get to, even though it's, uh, it's a lot of road movie too um because i i i found myself being engaged in the the basic very recognizable global uh, global feel that it has uh, because it's it's a road movie characters bo- characters first not bonding characters then bonding and then getting on and all of that so i i kind of enjoy that and i'll talk of uh, sort of why that is i mean the the long and short of it is of it is that thanks to actors definitely we uh that are engaged in the material we we certainly get uh, more of an effect yeah. coming through. Speaking of an effect coming through, this movie shot in the elements, like you read about. Uh, I don't know exactly geographically where this is shot, but most of it is in the harsh, snowy, um, barren, <laughs> barren nature of uh, of uh, you know Korea, presumably. Uh, I don't know. You, you know, you know, you start to try and get a handle on style here, and uh, whether they're done in the vein of style or out of necessity because if you look at some of the opening there's long interrupted master shots used with some you know cut cuts mm. to close ups or whatever but it seems like for several sh- setups including this very first one where uh, uh, Mr. Jong and uh, uh, the main character let me scroll up again so I get his uh, damn name uh, uh, Jung Dal where they meet, it seems like it's it's uh, just the camera being left out there and they're going to shoot this scene for a few minutes in the harsh, snowy, cold weather. And you think to yourself, are these characters going to drop dead in 20 minutes? Because well, they, yeah, totally. they are, I don't know if Lee waited for the worst of the snow and the cold before he shot. Or if this was just like, I think we're going to have to deal with this because we're in the elements. I'm going to make the movie this way. <laughs> it seems so perfectly set that that you would think he waited. I mean, there, there are a couple of scenes where there is a real snowstorm going on. I mean, it's it's nasty, and they're stuck out in it. It's not fake. It's not green screen. It is. No, it's certainly not. They're, they're out there in sub-zero. So, from my point of view, I think he, he waited, you know. I mean, on that level, the sort of lack of balance in my from my point of view, sort of is summed up by that first scene when it started and the two meet, the dialogue felt very, very classic Korean cinema, overstated, over droll, over long, over spoken. And as the film went on, it got more natural. I don't know if that's because the actors became more connected or what have you. I can certainly feel that the movie got more comfortable overall and that includes the actors because it once they're set up and once they can have a chance to bond we also see signs of chemistry between yeah, the actors uh, so it, it's a little you, you're right that, that that first section is probably a little bit more problematic but it's nice to see though because it is shot in scope in uh, full 2.35 widescreen and it does look good the restoration that this went through this is a restored hd print it really brings out these visuals nice it doesn't need to look like a grimy like fifth generation vhs type of movie because it's um it, it really the restoration really complements the harshness that it partially is um, set in and uh, and uh, me not knowing anything about the movie i just sort of lean back and uh, 
I, I, I could sense a simple tale being brewing here, but uh, maybe it's, you know, it's still a challenge to affect using the tried and simple, right? Uh, you, you need to do a road movie and a character drama and maybe character comedy uh, that comes with it in a good and confident way and like wow us with simplicity. That That's a challenge to do. I think just looking at the movie and how it eventually settles into its groove, I, I think even though he was ill, it does showcase a confidence and control of um, of uh, crafting this simple road movie that doesn't seem to say a lot and uh, and, he, and even is playful. I mean, the, the, the characters are they're broke and they're uh, homeless. It seems like they're, I mean, they're, they're going home, but it seems like they're homeless. And uh, Young Dal, even you know, multiple, multiple times, says like, "I have nothing but my balls. I have nothing but my two balls in this, uh, in this uh, world." So uh, they're they're not miserable characters. They're they're, they're kind of profane and out uh, outspoken characters. And uh, as they build the body team, that eventually is going to uh, end up being free people with the waitress or or the prostitute. I mean, is that the key to it settling into its groove? You think uh, once they add her, or is there further stretches? For me, she is the the sum total of where that film finds its groove. From the first time they see her, she's actually, she's going to the toilet outside in the snow, you know, and you've got the classic feisty, shouty, argumentative woman throwing bags, kicking, and her gradual warming to them and them warming to her i think just puts the film into the groove it needs to be in for me it's her she she pulls the other two together before that they were all right characters i wasn't i wasn't uninterested but i wasn't drawn particularly to them when she arrived she added a whole other level yeah i mean it seems like one of them especially young young dal seems incredibly stupid because they 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 have this uh, task of um they're gonna get paid for bringing her, um, bringing her home essentially, and they bring her back rather. So he starts buying stuff on credit before they're even paid, and he says daft things like, "I, I actually thought this was very funny," but he says daft things like, "It's better to invest before," you know, like who's got who, who's gonna believe his word <laughs> you know he apparently gets away with it because it's not like they have to run out of the store where they got all the snacks and food and shit. Uh, but he's a con man, it seems like he's a, like a bullshitter. He goes all words and no action. He's uh, you know super boastful, and uh, but but the actor has this um, persona kind of down. I think he looks per- perfectly rugged. And to be honest, and I'm sorry if this sounds in- insensitive, he's a dead ring of a Choi Min-sik. But he kind of is, really, isn't he? So you thought like relation? Who knows? I mean, it it isn't him, him obviously, but uh, it's he looked really. Even if the movie hasn't found its footing yet, yeah, I think he being so outspoken and uh, the bah, 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 the loud one out of the two, he looks really comfortable doing that. And maybe he was comfortable as comedic personas in, in cinema. I, I certainly don't know. So uh, you know, unlikely alliances are set up. You know, bickering and bantic, then being antagonistic, and then you know sort of that and, and that that's not a bad thing to know of cliches of the genre that the the perception of each other is going to change on the road you know because you're away from society most of the time so you're going to have to get to know each other in different ways and you peel away layers and all of that and um, there's hints at this but it seems like some a little bit of a frulan and a little bit of a hint uh, or theme rather, is that th- these are characters, they want to break out of their current roles and how they're perceived 
in society. I mean, um, homeless or hookers or, or waitresses. Uh, waitresses. Uh, but I don't know if that is ever really his his desire, Lee Manhe. It's more more that we, yeah. In in terms of this is what I want to say about the movie. It just it seems very stripped of commentary, uh, as far as I can see. Anyway, uh, or, or do you think it reflects something in society as these three um, go about the rogue movie that they're that they're on? Well, I, I kind of think it does, but again, the the great thing about good directors is that it's something you can take if you want to and something you can ignore if you don't. I mean, what we've got here, we've got two homeless people. We've got an ex-prostitute who worked in a, a coffee shop, you know, selling her body, et cetera, et cetera. And it's Lee Man He essentially looking at the downtrodden. And if you think of the time that this was made, commercialization democracy were all heading in korea and from my point of view he was showing characters that have been pushed aside from what korea's become once it was split families were separated people were left without jobs because now with korea building they needed skilled workers and these workers were unskilled so they're left either selling their bodies or and about there there is a scene in a road to saint paul where the three are walking along in the middle of the snow and there is a huge highway being built sort of above them and to me that sort of screams you know they're they're outside what korea has become you know and we've got one character looking to go back to his hometown to get back to being comfortable and you just think well if korea's changing that much is it gonna be what he thought it was yeah you know, and I think that was as much his deal. If if you look at all his other road movies, whether Late Autumn or Holiday, it's the same sort of deal. It's characters that are pulled out of society, not by choice, but because they're not wanted. They don't fit. And as these road movies go on, they fit with each other because they haven't got anybody else. That actually brings up a point that there's a scene where... In in some scenes they're they're drinking bodies essentially and they have a little back and forth that way and one of the characters probably uh, uh, Young Dal because he is the more more vocal of the characters he argues that the waitress slash prostitute's life is good because you work indoors and you you can drink <laughs> you have an income of some sort but obviously it's not a perfect situation that can wear you out and even though she is playful and and she doesn't wear her emotions on the outside necessarily but. Obviously, that isn't a good compromise. Okay, I'm going to settle into being a prostitute because I can stay indoors. You know, <laughs> it, it's like it's a very stupid thing to say. And, and by this point, I think that it's a very it, that there's a very fluent back and forth between uh, the actors, especially the two mouthy ones. And uh, very much so. And, and you got Kim uh, Jin Q, I think his name was. He's the more quiet, the more wise man. Again, cliches and all of that. But I think he does really well because he embodies that quite nicely i mean he looks the part uh, of jong i think and uh, he says what needs to be said in certain situations and has his own thing going on mostly internalized but but that's okay that doesn't make him anonymous for us the viewers and he's important for pulling the other two together really in terms of their whole persona he's she creates the the flow and he almost holds it together so it's it's a nice balance it, because it it could be clawing in other filmmakers' hands. Like, mm. you got the wise man saying the wise things at three, two, one, cue. But 
it works because by now it's settled into that groove, as we said, and it's nice to see these, you know, dialogue scenes in various settings, whether in snowstorms, whether walking in snow where there's thankfully some sun outside, and whether they're um, spending the night somewhere in front of a fire and things like that. And, and it's kind of cute, isn't it, to see uh, the two, like... Um, the, the waitress and uh, and the young doll uh, she has uh, on his back you know he's piggybacking him and he says like you're my rickshaw man but what if we began liking each other like what if that happened and I don't know it, it's it, it's nice to see I mean at least two of them will come together and they hopefully are moving forward during their trip and traveling minor friendship uh, uh, being brewed through through the scenes and and, and I don't think it gets a third in, let's say. I don't think it stumbles very much because it all of a sudden becomes quite nice to say, uh, to see. And he doesn't have grim on his mind, thankfully. I was kind of fearful of that, knowing nothing really other than me fearing that cinema is going to, ah, the ruggy gum going to pull it now. <laughs> They're going to die out there in the snow. Ha ha ha. But thankfully, Lehman, he doesn't have grim on his mind, uh, you know. What, what do you think of his hints at first hints at eroticism and then later almost full-on eroticism? Does that make sense for the characters to be sort of um, that, like almost uh, out of the blue, sexual with each other eventually? Not all, not all of them, just two of them. I think it kind of does because you know if you look at the that male character, Young Dao, the whole way through the first what twenty twenty five minutes, he constantly talks about sex. Mm-hmm. consistently he you know he he's a bullshitter you couldn't believe a word he says but he tries to convince them that when he didn't have any money he used to pay for sex or pay for meals with sex and you just think really yeah really <laughs> it's sort of that's that's upside down from what we'd normally expect in movies and she is a prostitute who's almost looking for love outside of that whole situation and she she wants to give herself to him rather than give her body so it for me for me it worked i mean when you see her there's there's a scene where she disrobes and she's completely lit blue it's a gorgeous looking scene. yeah yeah the later stages i mean but but before we get, get to that i i, I want to sing out like the first like hint of eroticism which is why I appreciate cinema sometimes because they dry their clothes over the fire. She doesn't disrobe completely. She takes off like one layer of her dress that she has yeah, on yeah. and she shows a little bit of leg and they all sort of go like, oh, wait, what? Not, not seen that before. Okay, fine, fine, fine. They, and, and they don't say anything like that. They just sort of, there's an uncomfortable thing in the air, but I'm just going to dry it. No big deal. And I actually like when those beats are caught, but not made into cinematic stunning moments i just made a moment because i'm a director yeah they just they just come and go exactly and, it, and i like it that. just it really works and it, it took to me it felt hugely natural because you know from an outside point of view if you were sitting there and that happened you'd be like oh you know you would do exactly the same thing if you haven't seen that before, and that if, if that comfort level between three hasn't been that before, that that is all of a sudden a new thing. But but it's not like totally. they they go into sexual rage or anything just because they saw a little bit of flesh in this case leg. But it's not even sexual. It's just well, like that, that's not been part of the oh, okay okay. Unrelated though it is, I think it does almost open the door for what comes later. You know, it almost it's the first inkling, and and to me it just. It, 
it was a beautiful little scene that really worked. And I mean, there's hints that we won't spoil it, but there's also hints that these characters carrying grudge, they're carrying shame. Uh, and, you know, at one point, Young Dal even sort of makes up his flashback, his backstory, which is sort of funny because he talks of like how his mind and body feels when he's drilling holes in a rock. And yeah. it's like this abstract recap from his prior life. Nothing of that, barely anything of that is true. And there's some darker psychology that becomes ugly once it comes out. And a character like that will lash out, even though he doesn't mean it necessarily. And by that point, when he lashes out, and the friendship that the three have bonded, especially them two, when when that is threatened, I mean, it's not classic five out of five care. But I did care, because this emotion, uh, as they started shouting at each other, you know, irrationally, I cared about that. Granted, we're dealing with Korean cinema, so Lee Man-hee is using, you know, the cry-talking melodrama tactics here. But uh, it's not embarrassingly done or anything. You, by now, I just sort of take that sometimes with a grain of salt and try and... Like, yeah, exactly. It, it is what it is. But, you know, the cry-talking, you know, <laughs> dialogue while they're speaking. So, uh, I don't know. I cared because the actors are comfortable, therefore the characters are comfortable. The writing has set that up, and even though it's conventional romance being built here, prior it was antagonism, now they're uh, they're getting on, and you have the elder wise statement, if you will. The, the sharp character who sees through everything and can say the right thing at the right time, even see through the flashback story, but in, not in this way where, where he becomes the enemy of Young Dal as well. He just sort of says, like, I know that's not true. That a little thing like that sort of completes that this is more than a solid triangular friendship story being built here, shot in, uh, shot in the elements, if you will. And um, that's not a bad thing, actually. Uh, sometimes cinema like that is gonna woo me when it's that simple. This didn't woo me, but there, there there's plentiful traits here of a director that just sort of I, I I know how to sort of craft a road movie right here if I do that and that and that and I know how to trigger comfortable acting uh, between actors and uh, yeah I'm gonna place them in snow but fuck them I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable doing this so well, ex- they're gonna exactly. be comfortable and they, they better be effing comfortable because we're gonna shoot in snowstorm tomorrow <laughs> yeah massive snowstorm I, I just love the fact that half of that dialogue is really throwaway it it doesn't matter what it is it doesn't matter whether they say much of anything it's it's the fact that the bonding's there and the bonding continues and if you look back at holiday and i assume late autumn which as i say isn't available anymore it's the same sort of thing holiday the two characters on the train really they're they're the whole conversations are completely inane completely throwaway completely unimportant and that bonding happens in almost the same way, maybe an even more subtle way than Road to San Po. But it's the same thing. This man knows how to make a road movie with so little going on that holds you in. There are road movies that I would not recommend whatsoever because I have a problem with them because nothing happens. But that's not the case with Lee Man He. Even though nothing happens, everything happens. It's a really twisted feeling from my point of view anyway. That uh, dip into like huge style with the blue lit, uh, blue lit characters and uh, like, like these like almost Suspiria style 
lightning schemes, you know, uh, that precedes the quite frank erotic content. I mean, was that a natural part of of it for you? Because it certainly stands out, even though the scene is quite nice, that they they, they almost do that to keep warm slash this is, as you said, the way she chooses to present herself to him, you know. To me, that was one of the most memorable scenes and it felt utterly natural to me. Uh, The way she, as she disrobes with her back sort of to the camera, and then turns her head round and there's there's a look on her face and he looks up at her and you just there's a connection and 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 the fact that it is also blue if you like just before an erotic scene sort of fitted so perfectly for me in in terms of we talked about eroticism in these early films earlier on um that scene where she's lying down you can see her curve of her you know her hip and what have you but parts of her are covered by bits of cloth and, and things. That's sort of the deal we're talking about. That's sort of the level of eroticism of all these films of, of, of the sort of late 60s, early 70s. Still still felt uh, not explicit and graphic, but still felt like it was it as, still felt uh, erotic. Uh, as naked as you can get. And why? And sometimes you don't have to disrobe completely, show it in full widescreen, totally nude. And then you can say, um, uh, I, I deem this movie erotic. You know, you, you don't need to do sh- show it all, uh, I suppose. I don't have m- any other notes other than the two things. I, I like the little scene where she uh, loses or gets abandoned in the marketplace. And she she uh, and also the way the cinematographer catches her just looking around like, where did it go? Where did it go? Where did it go? Like, because they're shooting this image people and this... DOP needs to sort of capture her documentary style and uh, Lee Man he like mutes almost all sounds of a soundtrack by that point because you know we uh, we the bliss is broken you know she's abandoned and uh, we we won't spoil it but uh, there there is um, a sort of I mean the ending is okay but I, I I thought conventional melodrama reared its head a little bit too long at during the ending stretches because there's there's a couple of too many cry talking beats here um as the characters do their will they don't will they won't they kind of routine um mm. again might be down to conventions of the cinema that is not surprising at all i just felt like it went a little bit too long uh, it kind of does but in terms of melodrama of that time you know that's not what you consider over the top in hindsight it, it is too long it is too much there is too much to and fro and and here's a ticket and go and change a ticket and yeah that's the scene at the train station yeah let's sit across the room from each other and i'll cry and i'll come over to you and then we'll leave and etc etc for, for me that whole ending could have been a little shorter but the look on the female character's face the very last image we see of her sort of that worked for me that just sort of let it all pass i liked it yeah it, it certainly without spoiling it it didn't end conventionally which uh, it's almost like there's there might be stories still left to be uh, told and it's okay i don't tell that you know you can fill in the rest that's okay all solid a, a glimpse into what he can do but as we established already in this episode this was not his main tack as director not at all it's um, we we didn't even really talk about the road movies extensively in our bio so this uh this added to it you know by the time we reached the movie review hey 
we got a road movie from this director too. So yeah, all good. I don't have any other notes, uh, uh, so uh, before we do the availability, anything else you want to say? The only thing I want to say, we've we've sort of summed up Road to Sampo. It's not his most notable work as far as most critics are concerned, but I think it sums him up as well as any film. And if you're looking for a road movie that's sweet, that's quirky, that may have balance problems that you're not really going to notice anyway, check out Road to Sampo. The last thing I'd like to just quickly say is if you go to the YouTube Coffee channel, the following films of Lee Man here are available. Here we go. Homebound from 1967, The Starting Point from 1967, The Devil's Stairway from 64, A Watermill that we talked about from 66, Midnight Sun from 72, Holiday, another road movie from 68, Break Up the Chain, which is the Mancurian film, The Marines Who Had Ever Returned, which is a war movie from 1963, Road to Sampo that we've just talked about, and Assassin, which we didn't mention, but which is... Probably as famous a Lee Man He film as anything else, funnily enough, about Assassin. So do check them out if you get a chance. Excellent. Well, as for availability, uh, The Road to Sampo or A Road to Sampo is available to watch for free, legally, and with English subtitles, as even Italian subtitles on it, uh, on the Korean Film Archive YouTube channel. And it is a wonderfully restored version by Koffer. And uh, the YouTube version is encoded in HD and looks actually rather tremendous. Uh, yes, indeed. There is some damage on the print still, so some spots here and there, and some flashes of color leaking into certain shots, which I think is ir- you, you can't repair certain damage like that. Uh, uh, otherwise, this uh, was uh, well-preserved and restored. It looks very sharp and very colorful and... Uh, so, so, so to have this looking pristine does not take away from the sort of gritty effect of shooting in the elements, if you will. So uh, it looks really, really good and something Kofa easily could put onto disc and it would represent a Blu-ray format uh, quite well. In the past, you weren't able to play most, if any, of the movies on the Kofa channel on external YouTube apps, such as the one for the PlayStation 3 or Apple TV. But it seems like this now has been changed, even for older titles. So this makes my work easier. You know, I don't need to do split screen between the movie and, and the notes on the same laptop anymore. Uh, uh, I, I remember Madame Ama was one where I could finally watch it on an external app, but certain movies uh, like Flower in Hell were still being shown as this is not uh, compatible or some other error message on screen when you try to watch it on the apps I mentioned. So it seems like Kofa or whoever or YouTube or whoever has lifted this restriction on watching these with, with subtitles on subtitles on external uh, apps. And that is really the way it should be. because it, I, I, I think that's a good move forward. I mean, from my PC, I've always been PC, so from my PC point of view, you know, I've always been able to use Kofa on any YouTube app, on any device, without any issue. So when you first said you couldn't watch it on an external device and an Apple thing, I was like, really? Hey, it's really good that they've actually sorted that, whoever has sorted it. Yeah, so hopefully that will stay. And uh, and, and they're not going back to upgrade like Flower in Hell to HD, though, at least not for now. That is still SD. They're not going to do several passes of restoration um, on it uh, as such. I think they have 
newer movies in mind in terms of adding Robert and going back. But who knows uh, what happen, what will happen to certain older movies. But it's, uh, they're certainly watchable in HD, HD uh, SD, rather. And now you can watch them on your external devices wherever you watch them. So um, uh, maybe uh, uh, YouTube apps that are available in your TV, you know, maybe you can watch them on that as well. So uh, let us know if you know. Uh, but anyway, next time, and that will be next week, we take a look at uh, a number of the big three from Korean cinema in 2016, and that would be that would be the one that had the greatest attendance last year, right? Uh, Train to Busan. Yeah, by a major margin. <laughs> After the, and uh, the Wailing and the Handmaiden were uh, two of the other were the other big three, I suppose, um, or uh, one of the big five. But uh, we'll be looking next week. Uh, at the Train to Busan, which in itself will be accompanied by a special bonus episode. So tune in next week for more. You can probably guess, but I'm not going to reveal it just now. But in the meantime, uh, we are going to conclude this. I'm ch- changing tack in terms of contacting for at the end of episodes nowadays. I'm just going to say go to podcastonfire.com for all your Podcast on Fire network needs and social media links. But since you are the co-host and co-producer of the show you still get to plug my friend so what do you do when you're not hanging around here i as always sit endlessly watching korean films writing about korean films trying to arrange interviews with korean cast and crew so i'm going to do exactly what you do head to hangosanglionite.com all the buttons are there check out reviews interviews little talks i'm trying to arrange a few more of those as well but you know we shall see what, what was the movie you intro like a few months ago, one of your l- latest uh, ventures where you did an in-person intro, if you will? What was that? Did The last one I did was The Red Shoes. Right, right, right. New Korean cinema horror based on the Hans Christian Andersen thing, 20-minute talk, a large part of which was trying to explain why the red shoes are actually the pink shoes in Korea. <laughs> you know, and it, the the looks of you know, jaw-dropping shock when people were going, what, It's not. there's nothing wrong with the colour then? No, they're meant to be the pink shoes. Prior to that, I spent about a week contacting people in Korea going, right, Hans Christian Andersen, what do you call his, what do you call his book? And, you know, you'd get answers, the red shoes, the pink shoes. Really interesting thing that all came from an old 1940s British movie that was screened there. And they incorrectly translated the title and called it the Pink Shoes. And the Red Shoes has been the Pink Shoes ever since. So, Well, uh, good that it's brought to the forefront. And uh, congrats on that little thing. And uh, for putting your, your all into it, my friend. Which you always do. Well, you've kind of got to, haven't you? Absolutely. But in the meantime, tune in next week for our episode on Train to Busan. Uh, the zombie movie of last year, even though they don't mention zombies ever in the movie. Uh, but uh, regardless, I've been Kennedy. With me was Paul Quinn, uh, hanging out with me during this episode on Lee Manny and The Road to San Po. So say bye, buddy, and take us out. See you later, guys.